This video is sponsored by Wing Wing Technology, your ultimate fly sim hardware solution. Hello everyone, I hope you're all doing wonderfully well. Another interview, we are really belting through these interviews. And I've got to say hello today to Shady. Hello Shady. Hello. Thank you very much for coming on. So, uh, we've got REF, Hawk and Tornado Sooty. Uh, I joined up in 1990 and after my mechanics course was posted to REF Valley on Hawks. I then spent four months in the Falklands on uh, 1435 flight Tornado F3s before being posted to Germany. I worked in the engine bay at RAF Brugger for two years on the RB199 before a posting to RAF Coningsby on the F3s again. In 1996 to 1997, I did my technician course at Cosford. After there, I moved to RAF St. Athan. Where's St. Athan? Uh, just near Cardiff. Not far from Cardiff. Okay. I worked on storage flights uh, looking after Hawks, Sea Harriers, Tucanos, Jaguars and Tornadoes. All of my favourite aeroplanes in one. <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, we also did a major servicing on Spitfire from the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight. Cool. In 1999, I moved back to Germany on 14 Squadron Tornadoes. Plenty of detachments to Kuwait, policing the Iraqi Southern No Fly Zone. Awesome. We had trips to Red Flag in Las Vegas. Awesome. Green flag in Utah. Awesome. And too many trips to Goose Bay in Canada. In 2001, RAF Germany closed and uh, the squadron moved to RAF Lozimuth. And I can never say that right. I moved across to 12 Squadron on the usual Kuwait and Goose Bay trips. In 2003, we were part of Gulf War II flying from Doha. I moved to Cosford as an instructor later and that year spending lots of time teaching UAE students and teaching airframes engineers about engines. I stayed there until 2005 when I changed trade to something completely different. What did you change trades to? Bizarrely, I went to university to become a nurse. Isn't that funny? That's not actually the amount of times I've seen people do the job and it's a great job and whatever. And later in life, they become nurses. And the reason I know that is because I've spent a lot of time in hospitals in the last few years. And, we, you know, you just get talking with the nurse and it's 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 sometimes just a calling in life that they have to do, um, which I found really interesting. Is that what you're working as now? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, weirdly, it, it was, um, you know, when you get bored in a job and sure, teaching sure. Your teaching the same sort of six-week course over and over again. Um, and there was an opportunity for interviews at Cranwell, and it was a three-day uh, interview. And I thought, oh, three days off work. But mm -hmm. I think probably because I wasn't that bothered about whether I got it or not, ended up with me getting it because I wasn't nervous. So I was sort of sold by them. Roger. Okay. Well, before we crack on with the valid viewers' questions, which, which we like to do, uh, a couple of stories have immediately jumped to mind. The more people I interview, the more kind of crossovers I find. I've noticed you were on, obviously, you, you're not flying, but you were on ground crew duty, if that's the right word, um, in certain places when several of the guys in our group, their actual pilot, tornado pilots, Tim Davies, uh, uh, Simon Pearson, uh alistair sorry i forgot his second name but another we've got three three pilots now that um and i bet you've crossed their paths at one point or another um uh, things, same bases even the same squadron um and yeah that must be really interesting i, I get the more, more people we interview i get the feeling you know the more kind of cross paths we're going to have um uh so that's interesting yeah i mean that so even on the squadron, you'll, I mean, obviously you've got the, the air crew that are officers and the, the ground crew that are enlisted. Um, but we operate generally out of different buildings or different parts of the same building. So weirdly, you know them in the short time that you're um, strapping them in and seeing them off and seeing them back. And perhaps just the odd chit chat and say hello. But very rarely do, is there any real mix in between us. Very interesting. Okay, uh, the other story I found really interesting. It was my birthday yesterday, and we had I had my parents come over, and we got talking about the tornado. And uh, my dad, who worked at the time for Cambridge Consultants, um, which were specialists in modems, modulator demodulators, uh, and turns out from 1981 to 1989, he made him and his group design and made all of the. Let me try and get this right. Uh, uh, analog. To digital converter units in the Tornado F3 for their radar in their radar bay, 
um, because that's what they specialize in. I didn't know any of this. It was really interesting. And the interesting thing was the Panavia or whoever gave them the contract specified that they, the this unit that they were making couldn't give any EM emissions because it would wreck the radar. So they had to make this whole unit and build it into a solid alloy heatsink, which had never done before. Uh, it's really interesting. Um, so one day I'm going to find an avi a tornado avionics guy and, and find someone who actually knows about that panel. I know you're going to be you're going to be engines. I just found that really. I, I only discovered that yesterday. It's a really interesting story. Boy, see if I can find one for you. If you see like. if you can, wow, that would be amazing. Well, maybe there's one about still because obviously they're not being used anymore now. So no, a few, but I mean, avionics people were always called fairies. Yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> nah, that's main, good. A lot of their panels used to be um, secured with something called a fairy fastener. So they they were fairies. A fairy fastener, brilliant, brilliant. I think they were pointy heads. I'm getting slowly getting the terms pointy heads in the Americans, but very good. Right, Mr. Shady, are you ready for the valued viewers' questions? Anyway, I'll try my best. As ever, uh, these are literally real questions from real people. They might be stupid. They might be amazing. They might have terrible English. Just suck it up, and we'll get through. So. One, which variant of the tornado did you prefer to work on? Uh, the F3 or the GR variants? Uh, it's, it's a difficult one to answer because I, I was differently qualified on each one. So the F3, primarily, I was, I was a mechanic. So most of the things that I did concerning an F3 were mainly flight line duties. So before flight, turnaround surfacings, after after flight surfacing. A little bit of rectification, but you're, you're really heavily supervised when, when you're a mechanic. Um, tornado GR4s, then I, I was a technician, so you're the supervisor and you, you're doing a lot of things um, above and beyond. So I'd have to prompt for the GR4, mainly because I knew more about it, so it becomes more comfortable. And... They would. They tended to be flown a lot harder, so you had more interesting things go wrong with them. Um, so I'd, I'd go for the GR4. Roger, and sorry to be a massive noob, but I am at the end of the day. Were the engines different in the fighter and the ground world variants? And disclaimer, my ha uh, my tornado books have just arrived for my birthday yesterday, but I haven't read them yet. But was there a difference in the engines? Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, the GR1, oh crikey, was it a 101? Um, RB199 Mark 101 uh, GR4s was the 103 and the F3s I think was the 104 um, I think the core engine was essentially the same um, the jet pipe was longer um, right. and the ECU was a DECU so it was digital whereas on the GR104 it was a MECU so it was more analogue Right, what I remember about, see, obviously you don't really see these planes now but uh what i remember about seeing them was that they were they were they sounded really impressive they were really loud didn't put that much thrust out compared with maybe contemporary engines but they were built around rugged rugged come on cat ruggedness and durability is that a thing that you saw in them or is that just a load of rubbish no absolutely um i mean engine change wise they were they were really quite easy to change for a start you know you could have have them in and out very very quickly if needed um they were also modular so within a, an rb199 there was 16 modules if you include the gearbox underneath um so all of the modules were, were obviously rated on hours so hours in in service to to be changed but even then you know it's that they lasted hundreds if not thousands of hours they were really 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 good Roger, yeah, exactly what I've, what I've heard about them. Uh, or an interesting thing about this engine, of course, is the massive reverse buckets. Uh, I remember they came like a clamshell around the back, didn't they? They're really impressive to give the reverse thrust. Um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, air operated, so it'd be a tapping off the engine that went into something called a TRCU, so a thrust reverse control unit. Really quite small as well. I don't know if I sent you a picture of one of those. The, the, uh, the unit itself? Yeah, yeah. No. Uh, I'll see if I can dig one out and send it over to Thank you. Thank you. I'm just as as we I'm just perusing Google as we look. I'm just looking at a kind of close up of that mechanism now and the piping to it. Did it have? Did the engine have a, a tra traditional, you know, kind of closable nozzle? It does, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, variable uh, nozzle. Yeah, at the back. 
Mm-hmm. So I'm just watching your your stream at the moment. So uh, second row down on the left, you've obviously got the the buckets deployed. Oh, it's hidden underneath. You can just see that the edge of the thrust reverse control unit. So if you go sort of halfway along the picture, you'll see some tubing. Mm-hmm. A bit further left and lower down. Right, right a touch. So it's there. So mm-hmm. just and then on the opposite side, you'd have the nozzle control unit. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, operated by air, tapping from the engine. Mm-hmm. And then if you can see the the, the arms that control the buckets, mm-hmm. uh, you'll have you'll see some tubing that, that runs around the outside of the engine, mm-hmm. just near where the, the fire seal is, so the black mm-hmm. uh, the black rubberized seal. Yep. Uh, and it was just a series of torsion bars that went into little gearboxes. Mm-hmm. So it went from the TRCU into the mechanism, and then it, it was just a, a mechanism that, that threw the, the buckets open. Cool mechanism. Right, uh, let's crack on, shall we? Uh, from question one, uh, I can't remember, are you a DCSer or not? Yep. If the plane became available in DCS, kind of a stupid question, really. If it became available in DCS, would you buy it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think like anyone though, if you, if you know it well, you'd be picking little holes in it, wouldn't you? <laughs> well, isn't it interesting? Yeah. To to me, it looked fabulous. To you, it would look that's in the wrong place, or that's slightly misshapen. And but I guess that's it comes with the job, doesn't it? You 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 know it. You know inside out all the nuts and bolts of it. Yeah, but I mean, conversely, very little about actually operating it. So, <laughs> you know, in, in, in the role that it's... Roger. It's okay. Right, next question. What were some standout ingenious design details that you can remember from the aircraft that you worked on? What an interesting question. Yeah, I was racking my brains because I think when you work on things, you, mm-hmm. you tend... It becomes normalised, I guess. You get used to them and, and mm-hmm. you don't see anything as novel anymore. It just becomes a pain, really. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, so I think some, something that's that was difficult to get your head around the operation of was was probably the dash pot throttle that they use on the Adore engine, so the Hawk and the Jag. That was that was difficult to get your head around how that operated because it was hydromechanical. It was variable rotating swash plates. It worked off ambient pressure and temperature and fuel pressure, whether it was high pressure tapping or low. Um, and basically, all it did was. It, it prevented overfueling on acceleration, so it metered the flow to match um, all those parameters, and it, and it prevented the surges. So, really, really clever system. It was probably the last of the the pure hydromechanical fuel systems, really. So, would that have been replaced by electric servos? Um, well, the, the system within. I mean, a lot of a lot of the systems we, we, we tend to say are, are electronically operated now, but at the end of the day, you still need a metering sort of orifice or a throttle of some sort. So in, in the Tornado, it was a kinetic knife. But again, that, that was operated from electronic sensors sending um, voltages to a particular unit, and that would just alter the the, the opening of the throttle. Mm-hmm. Just got a cool picture here from of the, uh, the RB199 with all its kind of guts on display, you know, the core engine. Really interesting. Hmm. Very cool. Uh, okay, let's punch on. How common was it for the RAF squadrons to have mascots in high-ranking positions? Did 14 Squadron really have a Burmese Python as a squadron leader? They did, yeah. Uh, and again, I think that was more of a an aircrew hijinks thing that they tended to do. <laughs> the, the ground crew tended to steer well clear of the bloody thing. Um, so that was kept in, in the aircrew building. Uh, its name was Eric. Um, and, uh, I know that it was definitely brought back to the UK when when Bruggen was closed or when fourteen came back. And I also remember at Waddington on the AWACS they had a massive owl in a cage outside. I think it's less common now, just just from a, a sort of RSPCA point of view. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Keeping your massive python getting constantly scared by engines yeah. and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I couldn't say in total, you know, whether it was absolutely pandemic throughout all of the all of the RAF, but yeah, definitely on fourteen. No, I've never heard of that. It's the first time I've heard of that. It shows how little I know, really. Uh, really interesting. Okay. Five. I once heard a story that after the Gulf War, number one, I suppose, the RAF intended to send the most capable interceptors we had to take part in Operation Dural. Uh, these were supposed to be the Phantom F3s before they were retired, but at the last minute, someone from the MOD pointed out that we had just sold 
the Saudis billions of pounds worth of Tornado F2s and suggested it would be slightly awkward if we sent Phantoms and not Tornadoes. Was this true and did the early F2 slash F3 Tornadoes have a bad reputation to begin with? I think this is bordering on... Uh, so it's an interesting story, isn't it? And I, I wish it was true. Um, all, all I can tell you is, is my perspective of it. And I know in the early days it had a really bad rap, that the F3 for the radar in particular. Mm. Um, I think they very, very quickly sorted that out. And, and as soon as they had, it, it was really quite a capable um, radar. Um, I doubt very much whether going into a war that the MOD would give a flying hoot about what what they sent out there from a political point of view. Um, I think they probably just sent the most capable aircraft they had at the time. And if you think about the Phantom was really quite late in its serviceable life and was probably carrying lots of ADFs and limb log entries mm -hmm. in it, it it was probably less capable than people like to dream that it was. Mm -hmm. If you, know. we do have a kind of romantic view with a lot of the oldies, don't we? And then the actual guys yeah. keeping them flying are like, yeah, no, it wasn't like that. And I'm, I'm sure if you ask a lot of pilots, you know, if if you needed to spend four hours in in one place, would you sooner be in a Phantom or a, or a Tornado F3? And I, I think I can guess what they choose. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. The same rings through to the new planes as well. Raptors and fifth gen and stuff like that. Um, right, anyway, uh, number six. Were the reversed thrust buckets on the Tornado difficult to work on and how effective were they? As the Tornado was never really considered to be a short takeoff and landing capable, it seems like unnecessary maintenance needed for another system that could go wrong. I, I think we touched on it earlier that um, so they were always used on landing. Uh, how capable and how quickly they, they stopped tended to not be our problem because we were, you know, 500 yards away in a hardened aircraft shelter. Mm -hmm. So it might be worth asking a couple of your, your friends who, who, who operated them. But I did have a flight in one, and part of that was he preloaded the thrust reverse before we landed. And it was mightily impressive how quickly it did stop. So um, I, I'm sure they wouldn't put them on there for no reason. I think there was always an issue with the brakes not being great on tornadoes until they got below sort of 140 knots, I think, rings a bell. Um, but working on them, ultra-reliable, really quick and easy to change as well. Um, and a lot of the time, it, it was sort of the, the mushroom stops, which is, as it closes and it latches, those were the only things that really caught and nothing that a good, good whack with a hammer didn't. <laughs> and, and it worked fine. Roger. Um, I didn't realise that you could pre-engage them before touchdown. So in other planes I've seen with similar systems, they would have a weight on wheel sensor. Did this, you could engage this in midair, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, you'd uh, rock the throttles over to the left. I think the right-hand throttle was thrust reverse and the left-hand throttle, I think, might have been spoilers. I'm not too sure you'd have to ask your mates on that. Um, but we, we always tested them on the ground when we were doing engine runs and, and they worked fine. But yeah, it would have been operated by weight on wheels. Right, how interesting. Okay, fair enough. Uh, right, question seven. Following on my previous question, as the reverse thrust buckets deflect jet blasts both up and down, did they ever cause problems by kicking up FOD into the engines? Not on RAF airfields, no. Uh, just because they're a bit like US airfields and, and a lot of uh, our allies, absolutely obsessed with FOD, foreign object damage. So everywhere was spotless. Um, I can't recall it ever really throwing anything down the intake. I mean, th there were times when there was stuff that was loose at the side that would get moved a little bit. Um, but on the buckets themselves inside, there were strakes on them. So all of these buckets were either left or right hand, right hand up or right hand lower, etc. And on the inside of the bucket would be strakes that would direct the air sort of forward but outwards. So it was never directly under the jet or, or over the jet. Watch out. Um, I did have a follow-up question and I forgot it because I'm stupid. So, oh yeah, I know. I was, no, I was just going to say, don't, don't go and land it in Russia. <laughs> uh, no. no. Uh, question eight. Uh, generally speaking, what was your favourite aircraft, aircraft type to work on and why? Well, I think if 
Uh, you worked on a flight line and it was a Friday and your boss said, as soon as all the, the jets are serviced and back in the hangar, you can start drinking. They're probably the hawk, uh, just because nothing ever really went wrong on it. Um, familiarity always drags me back towards the, the GR4 because you know all these little foibles and how to quick, fix it quickly. Um, but the Harrier was always interesting as well, just because it was so odd. You know, it was just really odd. Yeah, recently in, in, uh, interviewed a Harrier Sooty, and that was that was a really interesting interview because there's so much of that that's just different to anything you've ever thought about. It's, uh... Absolutely. I mean, on storage flight, we used to have to do uh, monthly ground runs, you know, just to keep them ticking over. Um, and every now and again, you'd have to do something on top of the wing, and God forbid you ever dropped anything because the wing would have to come off to get underneath the engine to... Uh, to, to fish it out because underneath you'd have access panels but you can guarantee if you dropped a nut from the top that it would be nowhere near an access panel so it'd be wing off engine out you, you wouldn't be very popular good lord I, couldn't, I, I have a bad enough time in my engine bay dropping bits so i couldn't imagine that god you've got to be really careful about dropping stuff haven't you doing your job yeah, people used to um i mean there's novel things you know you, you'd have a spanner but you'd tie pieces of string around the spanner and the other end around your wrist so if you did let go of the spanner you know you could always hoi it back out one thing in interest that i've heard about a lot from maintenance crews is that from kind of from my perspective it looks really a really cool romantic job working on these things but in reality like you said earlier it just must just become a job and you know a job's a job and you, you know you, just, you prefer the easier job so you can go home and get a cup of tea i suppose yeah, yeah, I, I suppose you do. I think what some people don't, I mean, some jets are better than others, and I think um, the Tornado is particularly quite good, actually, especially for a Sooty, because it's designed to be, you know, things, service units to be changed quickly. So they tend to be accessible, and they tend to be fairly straightforward. You know, you get the odd weird things like APUs are just a nightmare, and, um, and drive generators and things like that can be a bit of a pain, but... In general, they're quite easy. So I look at a, a garage mechanic and, and look at my own engine and go, oh, my God, what a nightmare. Whereas he <laughs> thinks about it the same way, you know, that, oh, it's very easy. Yeah, no, it's fair. It's all perspective, I guess. Right, uh, question nine. Can you explain some of the changes made to the engines in the F2 slash 3 compared to those in the GR and the ground rolls? I've always found it interesting how ground roll tornadoes have small engines despite being built for low level i assumed that high bypass engines needed a physically bigger fan for example raf slash royal navy phantoms had a wider fuselage to accommodate the spay as opposed to the original j79 what an interesting question yeah very interesting i think there's two or three bits that i need to pull out of that really i think um the difference between uh, the 103 and the 104, as I said earlier, mainly the, the longer jet pipe. And I, I actually had to have a quick look on Wikipedia just about the thrust. And generally, um, dry uh, thrust is fairly equal. Uh, it's, it's only when you get into reheated thrust or afterburner that it's more. I think that's probably where, where the, the, the extended jet pipe comes in, into effect. Um, so that, that's the main difference, and the operating system wouldn't, wouldn't matter too much, MECU and DECU-wise. Um, the next bit, let me have a quick look. So high bypass, that it didn't have a high bypass. It was it was really quite small. It's like 1.1 to 1 or something. So in essence, it's a turbojet with, a, with quite a small bypass. Um, so that's that bit. Um, the Phantom... I think, again, we're back to politics. I, I think the reason why, part of the reason they bought the Phantom is because they could then get Rolls-Royce to fit an engine into it and create jobs in the UK. So I'm, I'm happy to, to argue the pros and cons of that or be, be proven wrong, but I don't know. I, I, I just think it was probably just to try and get some, to offset the fact we were buying American, that we, we'd fit it with the Rolls-Royce engine. Roger, I'm just looking at one of the, I think this is one of the GR engines here, one of the uh, RB199s. I'm looking at the, the front, so it's staring into the main compressor. Below that is what looks like a big drive shaft coming out and forwards of the engine below it. Any idea what that is? Is that going off to drive something, like a big generator? Or generator. Something? Oh, 
Well, that's that's the power takeoff shaft. So that comes. Uh, so just in front of, of the intake, you, you'd have the bulkhead that goes into the SPS bay or the secondary power system bay. Um, that is the interface between the engine engine gearbox and the the gearboxes within the SPS bay. So to start an engine, what you would do is start the APU. The APU would then drive the gearbox that's attached to the aircraft, not the engine. Uh, the gearbox would then um, induce rotation within a, a fluid clutch, which would then spin that power takeoff shaft, which would spin the gearbox on the engine, and through a drive would then spin, I think it was the HP compressor, which would then get the whole engine up and running. So what I heard from that especially is that there's a lot of parts of the power plant that are actually attached to the plane um, and rather than the engine per se. Is that normal? Um, generally, I mean, so if, if you imagine you're looking down on, on a tornado just in front of where the engines are, you, you had a, a bay that went across the whole width of the aircraft and... You'd have the APU on the right-hand side of the aircraft that was attached to the right-hand gearbox. That gearbox could then independently drive the left gearbox as well. So from, from the APU on the right side, you could start either the left or right um, engine. Um, plus, if you lost an engine, you could also still have the two gearbox because it was independent. So you'd have two generators, you'd have two hide pumps, two fuel pumps, etc. So, Roger just looking at pictures of the engine bay but okay right okay very good uh right that's that question answered as best we can next what was the relationship like between pilots and ground crew on the tornado squadrons we often hear about pilots in other air forces sometimes increasing the workload for the ground crew by pulling too many g's over speeding the landing gear and not admitting it when they see the ground crew did this extend to engines, or was it only a problem for other ground crew? Um, personally, I thought the relationship was really good. Um, mainly, probably, because I started on, on the squadron at 99, just as um, we started um, operations in Kosovo. And there's nothing that binds people together, especially air crew and ground crew, is when they're, they're in action, and likely to get shot at, and they're relying on you to, you know, to make sure that whatever they're in is is use, uh, safe. So there was mutual respect there. Um, there was always that hierarchy, which I think you needed um, just within the military anyway. You, you know, you need some sort of structure. Um, every now and again, it could be a bit condescending, um, and if you had anyone in particular that was particularly trying not to swear, particularly nasty or, or anything like that, then it was quite simple from us to prevent them from ever flying again, really, just by pulling the odd circuit breaker. There, there was little tricks that we knew that would that would stop them doing anything. Um, but in general, I, I think they, they respected our efforts and our diligence and our, our skill, and we certainly respected them for what they did. Um, so, yeah, good. Awesome. Okay. Next, as you have deployed many times, can you give some insight as to the logistical effort needed to deploy even just a four-ship of fast jets? How often were things like spare parts, fuel, tyres, weapons, food and medicine being flown out to you? I, I'd absolutely be speculating from, <laughs> for the majority of this because um, we had some great... I mean, a trade in itself, you know, the, the supply trade... Um, worked around the clock, you know, constantly shipping things in and out. There's very little that we had to deal with ourselves apart from just get on with doing our job. Um, I think the UK, as opposed to some other nations, some, some of the bigger ones like the US, we, we there's very much an emphasis that we work with the host nation. So we rely on them for fuel, food, things like that. Um, if we... So, for example, when, when the Gulf War II started, we, we went to Al-Udid in, in Oman. And when we got there, it was quite heavily populated by the Americans, which is great. You know, the Brits always love that because there'll be a you know, Baskin Robbins or a pizza place or, or whatever, which we never had. Um, but we, 
we, we just used to beg, borrow, and steal off them. So n- nothing aircraft-wise, but you know, um, things like wood, you know, to build shelters or to build gazebos and things like that. And we'd they think our stuff was interesting, although we thought it was terrible. You know, so it's a, surprising what you can get for just a, a moth-eaten beret, an RAF beret. You know, you'd end up with torches and gerbers and everything. You know, what they valued was, was bizarre, really. Uh, but we, we never really ran out of everything. You know, stuff always turned up. Roger, very good. Next, was it ever possible to cannibalise parts from GR tornadoes to be used in an F3? Was there a large degree of commonality between tor- tornadoes operated by different countries? If so, did the fact that the Saudis used tornadoes ever benefit uh, you when you were deployed to the Middle East? Um, short answer is probably no. I don't think we ever benefited from any uh, Saudi parts. Um, I remember once we, I got sent out to Naples because one of our jets wouldn't start, um, and the Italians gave us a an igniter that I managed to fit in there. Basically, it's down to, to NATO stock numbers, so you might have commonality in parts between the F3 and GR4 that we just didn't know about. You know, the NATO number might be the same. It might be produced on the same machine to the same spec. Um, and you just put the NATO number in when, you, when you're ordering it and it turns up. So we probably wouldn't know, but we, we certainly wouldn't go across to an F3 squadron and, and ask to borrow something. We, we, we'd order it through supply. Yeah, we asked pretty much the same question to a Eurofighter uh, engineer a couple of weeks ago. And he said essentially the same thing. It's, it's not like... A kind of like you know with a car um you can order a nissan part from one nissan to go and fit in another it's highly highly regulated kind of like you're getting at you you given a number you order that number and that's it it's all like you're saying, like you're saying. Yeah, absolutely and, and the individual part that comes would probably have its own serial number as well which have to be logged against that particular aircraft so it's it's unlikely you would rob something off one aircraft to put to the other unless unless you absolutely needed to. I mean, that's not to say that within a squadron, if if you're allocated twelve jets, two would probably away, be away on major servicing or deep strip, uh, and one would be we used to call it the Christmas tree. So that's the one that you rob when you're waiting for spares to come in, hoping that you'd get round to actually completing that one wonder. Hmm. Cool. Very good. Again, we hear exactly the same thing from other ground guys. Uh, okay, 13. From what I can tell, the RAF had built up a good reputation at Red Flag for consistently embarrassing the technologically superior USAF with nothing more than a few buccaneers and GO1s. Did this reputation extend to way USAF ground crew looked at RAF aircraft or was this dismissed as just another foreign aircraft? Yeah, again, I think this is uh, sort of 50% of this answer would be best coming from from the uh, crew. But um, it, it depends what, what you class as technical, technologically superior. I, th- I think we always think of radars and, and and things like that as being, you know, a measure of how superior something is. But you look at a Buccaneer or a Tornado, there's very little that can catch that so low level at the speed that they go when you're purely designed as a fighter. I mean, probably more so now with the loop-down radars and things, but for for what they were designed to do, they were superb at it, absolutely superb. Um, Yeah, with with regards to to ground crew, we we tended not to mix too much on operations with with the Americans, and that's not because we didn't want to. Um, It's just we tended to be separate. Every, every interaction we had with them, it was always friendly, respectful. They were slightly different from culture-wise, not too different, but um, but yeah, absolutely fine. Great guys. And um, like I said before, you know, they'd, they'd swap things or give you things at the drop of a hat. Um, I, I suppose the, the country that I'd align with more just from experience would be the Aussies in, in Gulf War Two because they were right next to us operating F-18s. And some of the banter that we got up to was... was absolutely obscene you know putting models of the queen up naked they were <laughs> we were slagging their cricket off and just really good really good guys um but in general you know we, we all had a job to do and we got on really well and we'd do anything for each other so yeah very good 
What, in your opinion, was the most tedious slash frustrating aspect of working on the tornado? Were there ever any jobs you just hated doing? Yeah, I put two or three examples down. So APU changes were a bit of a pain because on first glance, you'd look at it and think, well, it's dead accessible. You open a panel, it's right in front of you. But just little faffy things that you had to move out of the way. And sometimes you'd have to take the whole APU out just to get to igniter. So little design things on that was a, was a pain in the backside. Uh, boroscoping engines um, took a while and you sort of get disheartened because very rarely did you find anything wrong anyway. Um, and that was one of the fears sometimes as a supervisor that people would just sign them off without doing them. So I don't know, that, that was always a worry. Um, and you tended to, in the early days, if, if a ferry or, or a plumber, which is an armourer, were, were doing, uh, or, or a rigger, were, were doing things on jets, that they tended to want, want to do uh, ground runs afterwards just to, uh, to, to operate the system. So you'd end up hanging around for hours and hours and hours till four or five in the morning to do literally just start the engine up for them, which was a bit of a pain. Oh, John. Okay. The boroscopes, are they literally just the, you know, optical type boroscopes? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so you would, um, there's access holes within the engine for for different stages of of the engine. Um, And then there's another access hole where you would put a tool in that would rotate the blade so you could look at each blade in particular, or you could look at like nozzle guide vanes or things like that. Interesting. Okay. Uh, Right. Dean, how does the depth and breadth of the British Armed Forces aeronautical engineering training compare with other Western nations? Again, without knowing other Western <laughs> what they do, it's a difficult one to ask, mm. is to answer. Um, so all I can say from, experience, from my experience is that mechanics uh, in the early 90s, late 80s, you left with the city and guilds in aeronautical engineering. And a lot of that was your basics, your hand tools and things like that. And then you get an overview of gas turbine theory if you if you were a sooty, for example. Um, the technician's course was much more in-depth, and that was an ONC um, in aeronautical engineering. And that, that caught quite a few decent guys out who were, were very good with their hands and knew a lot about the particular aircraft they were working on, um, but struggled a little bit with the physics or the maths of it. Um, but yeah, it was, it was hard, but it was good. Officers, engineering officers, tended to have a HNC or a degree. Um, I think what they tried to do in the 80s was, was to introduce civilian licenses, you know, on, on some of the larger aircraft uh, engineers. But what, I think what they found was that they put all these guys through the licenses and then they uh, PVR'd, uh, left the RAF and ended up on three, four times more an hour than they were on inside. So mm-hmm. they assumed not. Right, yeah. Uh, What are the career prospects of someone leaving the forces with similar qualifications and experience? Is there a decent career path from military to civilian? Um, That's a great question, isn't it? I I think it's less about the qualification. The qualification helps, and I think you can transfer that to to many fields. I think what what matters more is what being in the Air Force or being in the military in general um, gives you. I mean, your attitude, your resilience. um, I think that's what's attractive to companies. And I think there's nothing that increases your resilience more than than being in a 72-man tent, you know, with that shared misery. Mm -hmm. (laughs) to, To get on with other people and to just get your head down and do it. Um, it just it just instills a coping mechanism, doesn't it? Absolutely. And that, 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 that's a difficult thing to say because that's all, only my experience. I mean, the other side of it is being a nurse. You, you come across um, sort of army marines and, and people who've been really severely injured. And it's difficult then to say that, that my resilience comes off um, bad times or, or, or off shared misery when, when you see what they've gone through. So... I really feel for those people, and I, I think I, I worry more about those those guys and girls than, than I worry about ex-engineers who've, who've just spent a really crappy time in the desert, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Andrew. 
Okay. Um, question 17. I understand that a derivative of the RB199 Mark 104 from the F3 tornado eventually became the EJ2000, which I think is the engine in the Eurofighter, which went on to power the best frontline fighter in the world. Yes, I must be right. Yes, I am extremely biased. Considering how well the EJ2000 performs, even by modern standards, did the Mark 104 design stand out uh, as particularly advanced? Yeah, I, d I didn't really know. I mean, I, I knew that the the 199 was fitted in, I think it was the EA EAP, was it called? The experimental, you know. The, oh, I didn't know that. The run into the Eurofighter. And I presume that was just because it was an engine that we had that was fairly powerful that would fit, really. I, I'm not sure that the, that the 199-104 ended up being the EJ200, I think it is. Um, so I don't really know. I, I think the difference is you, you've got quite a powerful engine in a smaller aircraft that's lighter. Mm -hmm. So that probably had more to do with it. Um, but the EJ200 is... Is an outstanding uh, engine, you know, power to weight ratio wise compared to the Tornado, anyway. So, yeah, uh, really, really is impressive. The EJ, although it's not that powerful, I think uh, I, I haven't really practiced for this, but I think it's less powerful than uh, a Legacy Horn engine. Uh, but the the whole airframe in total is so light that it's got a mad power to weight ratio, and you know that as soon as you go and see an air show and compare it to other things, it just really is quite an amazing. Uh, but also the sound it makes. The only thing it sounds like to me is a Legacy Hornet or a Super Hornet. It doesn't sound like anything else with a slightly bigger engine. They're really loud, yeah. these things. Yeah, it does sound... I, I think what, what annoyed me about the Tornado is from the front, it, used to, it was like a high-pitched squeal. It was awful, you know, if you got really close to it and engine runs. But around the back, when you stuck it into reeds, that, that, that's when it was great. It was impressive. Yeah. Yeah, amazing engine. Okay, that's that. Um, so that's EJ2200. We're getting mixed up with the EF2000, aren't we? Uh, right. My family was in Bruggen. I used to watch the planes take off uh, the Lightnings. Oh, yes, F4, yes. What squadrons were there? And was it still a QRF station? This is from Mad Dogs. Brilliant. Um so, what squadrons were there? So, when, when I was there, as you came through the camp, you had the runway, in, and around the runway were four squadrons on holding aircraft shelters. So, if we do it clockwise, uh, the first one you'd come to would be 17, 17 squadron. You'd then come across uh, four, oh, no, 17. I think then it was nine, then it was 14, then it was 31. Um, were they QRF is the next bit, yeah. Um, well, yes and no. So they, they weren't fighters, so quick reaction fighters. However, up until we left, I think, well, we, we, we there was obviously a, a nuclear dump there as well. So we would do tachyval exercises and things where, where we'd load nuclear weapons. Um, so technically, I suppose it was a quick reaction to something going off, but by that time, uh, it was very unlikely that, that it was ever going to happen. Um, so no QRF in a, in a fighter sense, uh, again, mainly because you, you're surrounded by US air bases that have got more than enough uh, to sort that out. Um, but possibly from a, uh, a strike point of view, yeah. So what did they have at Bruggen? They had the tornadoes, they had the JAGs. Well, I mean, there'd be very little crossover. So it was all tornadoes or all jags. So as squadrons phased out the jags, they would then replace them with the tornadoes. Roger. There was also phantoms there at one point. Yeah, I just saw a phantom picture. Awesome. Yeah. Okay, very good. Uh, we're getting on. Uh, where are we now? Uh, bu -bu 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 -bu. Where was maintenance carried out with more urgency for aircraft on QRA compared to others, as I would assume that any small issues would have been dealt with immediately rather than uh, deferred. So did you, were you working with um, QRA situations? I guess you were, weren't you? Uh, yeah, definitely in the Falklands. Um, so in the Falklands, you, you had four... F3s when I was there. 
Uh, and we they were called Faith, Hope, Charity, and the last one was Desperation. Hmm. And so you'd have, I think it was about 10 aircraft shelters, but we had four aircraft there. Um, two were always on uh, QRA, uh, and you'd always have the ground crew and the air crew that were stationed in between the two hangars, and they didn't leave there for, for, the, for the period that they were on QRA. Um, what you would tend to do is, you would tend to use the best aircraft on QRA, and if you saw something that was going to be a problem, you would swap it with another aircraft rather than doing the, the work while the aircraft was on QRA, if that makes sense. So rather than do a job in the QRA hangar, you would literally swap jets for one that was that was operational and, and do the work on that in a different hangar. Where where were you based at this time exactly? Uh, for the, oh, uh, Falkland, so that'd be RF Mount Pleasant. Oh, it doesn't mean anything to me. Right, I'm gonna have to go and have a look at that now. Uh, I'm just starting to. I'm just learning properly about the uh, Falklands now. But uh, REF Mount Pleasant. REF. Oh, I'm gonna have to interview about this as well. But we're not quite ready for the. We're not quite ready for that. Mount Pleasant. Okay. So is this actually on the island? Where are we in the world now? Yeah, yeah it's, a bit, it's about, I think it was about 20, 30 miles just to the west of Stanley. Yep. Okay, so we've got it there. Right, how interesting. Oh, I can't wait to hear about all this and all your stories. Okay. I'd love to quiz you further on this, but I think we'll wait maybe uh, until we get more into the Falklands. But that's it's awesome to see that we've got um, a serviceman from there who will be willing to talk to us, hopefully. That would be cool. Um, back to the, the viewer's question. Uh, there was a kind of second part. Was it ever possible to tell when an engine was being used for QRA due to increased increased wear and tear? Um, yeah, not not just the engines either. The the aircraft. So so most aircraft have, um, <laughs> I suppose, the telltale boxes. So they'd have uh, a, a box in there that one of the the engineers when it landed would, would make a note of how many times a certain G level was pulled. Um, that would then go in into the into the computer, and it would uh, knock off so many flight hours or so many cycles from that particular aircraft. So there, there was very little the aircrew could get away with. You know, it's not as if they could pull twelve G, come back, and then just whistle away into the into the crew room. You know, mm -hmm. you, you know about it. Um, engine wise, engines were were different really because they were limited on, on uh, turbine blade temperature. So um, you really couldn't exceed that because that, that was set apart from you would have what um, we used to call it the war and peace switch. So there's a bit, little bit of copper telltale wire that if you switch that would take you above and beyond um, the, the limit for that. So you definitely know if that, if that was tripped, but in general, um, they, they, they looked after the jets. It was in their interest. The air crew were really quite good. Next question, a bit of a weird one. Um, where does militaries get their wives? Asking in dimension of because they are all in a man's collective. That's from Iquim. Where do militaries get their wives? <laughs> it's actually, it's actually, it's an interesting question. Uh, you know, it's an odd thing to ask. But if you're, you know, in that lifestyle, lifestyle. how does that happen? Yeah, yeah. I, I suppose. Um, I, I suppose a better question is where do, where do military people get the wives that stay with them? <laughs> That's more important. I, yeah. I think lots of young lads tend to um, get off with local girls who probably see it as a bit of excitement, um, and it tends not to last too much. I mean, there, there are obviously exceptions to that. A lot, a lot of lads I knew actually ended up marrying people that from where they were from rather than from where they were posted. So they'd go back home on leave and they'd end up with, with people there. But um, just, just regular places, you know, wherever. It tended to be nightclubs and discos that were close to RAF camps, I suppose. I'm surrounded by some US, USAF bases, Milton Hall, Alconbury, well, it's gone now, I think, um, uh, Lake and Heath. And a lot of those over the decades, a lot of those Americans have married here and settled in Norfolk, as we call it, which is the it is the um, 
uh, county where we are. Sorry, I don't know why I said that. Obviously, you know that. Um, and, and there's a lot of there's a lot of Yanks if you go to Norfolk that are settled, obviously retired and settled there. So, how do you compete with an American in Britain? You, you don't. You can't. You don't. You, they turn up with their big V8s and they're like, "Hey, baby," and we're like, "Man, nerdy Brits." But uh, anyway, so the, yeah, the Yanks they control they control Norfolk. But there you go. Um, very good. Uh, that's that. How do you feel about computer software? class flight simulators um use it as a hobby or any else you're gonna have to you're gonna have to figure that one out i'm afraid shady um so i i think like most people most lads i think were interested in it for for years i, I can remember in the 90s playing uh that i don't know if you remember the tornado one you know the graphics were awful but I loved it. absolutely loved it what was it um, called what was it called i don't I, I think it was all tornado, wasn't it? Tornado sim PC game. I'll try. See what that comes up with. A tornado gameplay. Wow! Look at that. I that nineteen ninety three, nineteen ninety three. No, that bypassed me completely, and that does look horrendous. By the way, even for nineteen ninety three, yeah. that was horrendous. Yeah. The time it was awesome. It was awesome. I bet it was. You go back and look at Falcon Three or whatever though. It's all. Sorry, I might have said that wrong, but, but, but you know the old Falcon. Wow, look at that! I think the, I mean, roundabout. That, that's when I got married, actually, in '93. So all that fun stopped. Um, mm. So I suppose then you, you've got that uh, the family time when, well, especially back then, you're not earning a lot of money. The PCs were prohibitively expensive. There wasn't great games out, so I sort of dropped it for a while. Um, and then it's only as I sort of reached my thirties again, I started to see the improvements. And yeah, it's a great hobby. It's great escapism, if nothing else, especially in VR. You know, it's just a way of um, sorting your mental health out a little bit and just resetting yourself. I think it's just a great thing. And and also joining a group with like-minded people who are, who are generally really nice guys. Yeah, it's, I get a lot of flack for calling it a game because people have some weird thing that they must call it a simulator otherwise you know it doesn't validate their lives but it is it's, it's like i always say for apart from me for 99.99 percent of you it's really something for you guys to come home to and just just get away from it you know just reset your brain have a bit of fun that's what it's there for and it does it very well as i'm sure other games do work as well uh, interesting here it says amiga do you remember that there was a it's yeah. a pc and amiga my friend wilson had the amiga i had the pc and we would always argue about which is better God, those were the days, weren't they? I think this was on the Amiga that I had at the time, yeah. Emma's does an Amiga, yeah. How about that? God, how times have changed. Right, that's that. Is that our last question? It is our last question, Shady. Uh, I really enjoyed that, and I learned a lot as well. Um, that's not to say because I didn't actually know hardly anything about the tornado. I always hated the tornado. Hated the tornado until as soon as it retired, and then I loved it, which is unfortunately just how it works for me. As soon as something's retired, I immediately love it and want it back. Um, same with yeah, cars. Same with cars. I suppose the further you get away from it, I haven't worked on it for 15 years now, you, you, you become, I don't know, it's like an old girlfriend, isn't it? 15 years down the line, she isn't as bad as you thought she was. <laughs> yeah. you, start, yeah. you start to sort of reminisce about things. So, yeah, I mean, it's a shame, but, you know, life goes on. Roger, well, now it's become cool and, and retro. I'm starting to learn about it. Like I said, my books have just arrived and I'm going to start, um, I'm going to start researching it. Uh Shady, it was lovely speaking to you. Anything you miss, anything you want to speak about or whatever before we sign off? Um, not in particular, no. Um, I mean, if anyone's got any further questions, I'll be happy to answer it via you know message or whatever. But uh, thanks very much. Thanks very much. And if you're interested, like I said, in a couple of months' time, I'd love to do uh, to cover the Falklands um, campaign. I'd love to have get your view on that and maybe some sound bites from you on that of your time up there. That'd be really interesting to cover. Absolutely. Yeah, happy to. Cool. All right. Well, thank you very much, mate. And I will speak to you in due course. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Bye. Bye.